you know, I remember walking into the kitchen in really dry years and I was, you know, I was a mere kid. I didn't really know what was going on other than that we couldn't have deep baths and couldn't flush the toilet for a number one, you know, stuff like that. Um, but I remember going into the kitchen and he'd be there with his head collapsed in his hands. I'll never forget that and I'll never forget, you know, when he had his first amputation on his foot. Well, good day and welcome back to the final episode of our Super Saturday series. Just kicking off, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, extend my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'd like to extend those respects to the traditional custodians in the land and wherever you may be listening to our podcast. This week, I'm sitting down with Alex Thomas and she is an absolute rock star. Before we jump in straight into today's chat, I'll give you a bit of an overview. And I thought rather than re-recording it, I'd just read out as it was with Alex because I think you guys will be able to pick up the energy from this conversation from the first minute that we started recording. Alex Thomas is originally from a remote sheep station. She describes herself as having an unwavering commitment to health, safety and the well-being of people. I think what we'll start to discover though is as we build out the layers, it's a real care for people that have been shaped from uh, being a part-time carer for her disabled dad. Alex has been recognised as the AgriFutures Rural Women of the Year for South Australia and more recently the 2020 Syngenta Growth Award recipient in the community and people category, which is so cool. Alex, I'm pretty excited because as I've researched you and looked at your profile and different articles, I, I love that you're kind of just a, a plain speaker and you you call it how it is. So I'm excited for this chat. So welcome. Wicked. Thanks so much, Ollie. I'm super excited to be here. Well, just kicking off, how are you going? Whereabouts are you coming to us from? So I, I put a caveat around this. So obviously I'm, I'm angry. I came from the sheep station in the northeast pasture of South Australia, but I am now based in Adelaide. Um, bang in the middle of the CBD with terrible internet connection. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've got my partner here. I've got a small white fluffy dog, not a Kelpie, and I am everything and anything that's probably not normally associated with ag. Well, it might flow into working the work health and safety piece because yeah, right? really breaking the stigma. Will we have a, have the dog come in mid conversation today or not? Yeah. Well, either the dog or the baby you choose. <laughs> Perfect. Well, mine's away, but normally she starts barking like mad. So, good. <laughs> Tell me, so you mentioned growing up on a sheep station. When did you move into Adelaide? Um, gosh, I've lived in Adelaide sporadically. So, um, at the age of 12, my parents, much to my disgust, sent me to boarding school down here. So, that was sort of my first exposure to the big smoke. And, um, you know, throughout the course of the last 34, stellar years of my life I've lived not only here in Adelaide um, at boarding school but obviously now here as a resident but also in Port Lincoln, Roxby Downs, Perth, Darwin and Wakery and really growing up sort of designated anywhere between um, Burra and Broken Hill as my stomping ground so yeah. <laughs> so do you do you have a home as such or have you always like yeah if someone asks you where's home for you what do you say I love that question I've, I've actually thought really hard about this because when I first 
um, sort of re-entered into the rural sphere and recognised that there was perhaps an opportunity to do some stuff from a health and safety perspective. People were like, oh, but you live in Adelaide. I was like, hey, I've spent like 27 out of my 30-something years living on the land. Like I don't, you know, what is this? Um, and the question of where's home has meant so many different things over the years. Like when I was living in Port Lincoln, I am sort of positing myself as an amateur surfer and trying to transform my sense of identity. I was like, yeah, this is me. This is totally me. I'm a coast girl now. And I was working for the fishing industry at the time. Um, but I guess really like the 15 years that I spent on the station, uh, Pinery Station, just off the barrier highway, sort of close to Yunta, that that is that always will be my home and that's sort of at the center of my heart although obviously I live down here and my partner's from down here so um you know the best I'm probably going to do in terms of moving rurally in at least in the immediate is probably to the Adelaide Hills hopefully if we can actually buy a house in this crazy crazy market that's that's pretty cool I was gonna say well I think I resonate with you a lot on that where it's kind of like a bit of a chameleon you kind of know where your roots are but then at the same time too it's like oh well, we'll just make the most of being in these different communities <laughs> yeah yeah I know right and I think boarding school is so great for that because you end up invariably going to stay with other people in other parts of the state and you go to socials and you meet you know country networks run deep and thick I suppose so I've been really lucky in that sense. It took me a long time. Initially, I was like, but I don't want to be associated with any other place ever, you know, but uh, but I've now recognised that that, you know, diversity of experience and having lived other places is actually really cool. Tell me a little bit more about where you were as a kid. You mentioned you spent 15 years on the station. Whereabouts was it? Yeah, so um, Palmeroo Station, which has now been subdivided, sadly, into lots of different pieces, is... Uh, just well, probably about 350 or, or so k's northeast of Adelaide in the northeast pastoral, so just north of Goiter's Line, um, which is a notoriously dry part of the world. Obviously, no cropping, all sheep, saltbush flats, and Mallee, and um, sort of the southern extension of the Flinders Ranges. So it's a beautiful part of the world, but you do need a lot of a lot of that country to do well. Um, and that was one of the biggest challenges for our family trying to make a living out of it. And so as a kid, what would your days look like? The school, school bus or what was school? What was Absolutely not. Quite <laughs> <No way. laughs> um, like a stereotype tomboy, I suppose. You wouldn't see me outside of ripped jeans and a pair of desert boots and grew up basically on the back of a horse, back of a motorbike and the back of the ute or generally somewhere out the back. And, you know, one of the beauties of being far enough away from town is that you get to do school of the air and, um and mum was my gavo, and so we started super early at 7 o'clock in the morning. We knocked off around 12, and then I was just, you know, out being dad's shadow for the rest of the day until, of course, I was sent to boarding school. So um, as far as my childhood goes and that lifestyle, just the best. Couldn't, you know, couldn't fault it. Was School of the Air for you still doing it, like, with two ways back then, or...? What was it like? Yeah, 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 yeah. It certainly was. Yep, there's some classic photos getting around of me on the radio and um, we had our own schoolroom. And, in fact, we started to trade, Open Access College started to introduce computers and the internet way back in the day when it was like, ding, 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 and it made that noise when you fired it up and you had to reboot it every 10 minutes or whatever. <laughs> and I remember, like, we got the internet and I was... I can't remember how old I was, but my dad would bring his friends into the school room and be like, and look at this computer. And we'd all stand around and look at the computer and watch me fire up the internet and search the web. And it would take about six years for a page to load. 
Um, but it's Lights, amazing. Flicker and a few other yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, amazing. And such a such a cool thing to, to have, you know, for our generation to have really started with computers and to be able to carry those skills into today. Like it's, you know, I feel, I feel for a lot of the generations that didn't get that opportunity and now find it quite difficult. And it's interesting, isn't it, off the back of kind of COVID as well? And it's something I think about only because all I know of School of the Air is literally of a couple of people that have done it. But hopefully this learning remotely piece for everyone across Australia and vast parts of the world can really transform the way kids in remote areas can can learn. And I'm sure it already has. It has. And I think it's fascinating, like, because we watched everybody in metropolitan areas all of, how, all of a sudden have to learn how to teach their kids or at least try and facilitate um, some of their learning. And, um, you know, like people on the on stations in particular have been doing this for eons. And, um, you know, I guess another one of the things that we learnt in the metro is, is what it feels like to be in sort of semi-isolation. And um, Shannon Wan talks about this, you know, we're kind of, you know, when you're out on the land or you're, you know, 100 k's further north of the city, then, you know, it is isolating. But the city can be isolating as well. Um, you know, there's just not the sense of community that there is in rural areas. So, yeah, lots of learnings come out of COVID, including the fact that health and safety is now firmly on the agenda in a lot of arenas, which is, um, of course, I'm biased, but I think a really good thing. <laughs> Talking about that, well, you just mentioning kind of the isolation and loneliness that people can feel in metro areas. What was the transition like from going from school to the air into boarding school oh in the capital city? It was hideous. It was absolutely hideous because I think I was the first of, I was the eldest in the area, so I didn't know anybody else coming down. Um, and, you know, I grew up desperate never to leave the station <clears throat> and desperate to be, you know, to walk in dad's footsteps and become a station owner and whatever else. And I remember, you know, unceremoniously being told that that was not a job for girls. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, uh, yeah, it came down to boarding school and just, just, you know, fish out of water really for probably the first two or three years. And that's not every kid's experience, um, but it certainly was for me and it was, you know, it took me those first couple of years to not burst into tears, you know, every other day and certainly coming back to Adelaide from exits and stuff like that was really difficult. But, um, you know, of course I learned over time that you, it's much much better to make the best of both worlds and embrace everything that they both have to offer in the long run. Who would have thought that all those years later you'd be calling Adelaide home? <laughs> I know. And the frightening thing is, is that as treacherous as that time was, and although the teachers were wonderful and everything else, like I live about 4.8 seconds from that boarding school, so I have to face it every <laughs> single day. It's like... <sighs> PTSD. Yeah, tell, I know. I know. <laughs> tell, I don't want to bring up bad memory. Tell me a bit more about, so, yeah, left the station. You got told by your dad that farming wasn't exactly a job for the girls. And so what... Yeah. What I'm sure, I'm not sure, maybe workplace, workplace health and safety was on the cards as a teenager. Oh, yeah. Like, because I totally fell out of bed one morning and was like, I want to be the antichrist of agriculture and become a health and safety person. That's definitely what I was thinking. It's amazing no, how it can happen, isn't it? <laughs> no, I think, like, honestly, I initially was like, oh, you know, I'll just be a journo because, hey, I'm okay at writing and um, that's what girls can do with agriculture um, that doesn't involve working in a kitchen flat out or you know, yeah, um, at that point in time. And <clears throat> so I had my sights set on becoming a journal, working for the Stock Journal, um, got into journalism, and then 
you know, we, there was a series of unfortunate events that happened while I was at boarding school and ultimately we ended up having to sell the station, which was um, a pretty miserable experience. But, uh, you know, long story short, I ended up, instead of going straight to university, again, much to my parents to discuss stuff, they invested so much time and effort in sending me down to town. I was like, no, bugger this, I'm going straight back to the land. And I went and was a station hand for 18 months and a contract musterer in the latter half of that um, just to kind of reconnect with that sense of home and, um, you know, and get my bearings, I suppose, emotionally, if nothing else, really, because, you know, there's this connection that we as rural people have with the land that you just can't describe. And, yeah, and I was just desperate to reconnect with that. So, yeah, it was great. It was, it was really healing, sorry about that, a really healing experience to go back up and do some work on the land. And you started to chat about that, this interesting... Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Health and safety. What were the series of events that were happening in the background? Yeah, so, so before my time, um, like Dad, obviously, Dad came from a, um, a farm in the, in the mid-north around Golden Air, which is a relatively affluent kind of farming area. And then the, the notion was in the late 70s, we really get big or get out. So the family business decided to expand to this pastoral property north of, northeast in the northeast pastoral. And so we went there and sort of Dad landed there and, you know, Mum came along and then um, no sooner had they sort of kind of established themselves but got hit by the drought of 82 and so back then feral goats were everywhere you know pastoralists couldn't get rid of them fast enough and dad thought you know what well maybe I'll diversify our income stream by going and mustering feral goats and so in the process of doing that and of course doing everything that everyone in that generation does in terms of like working flat out never taking holidays um, you know eating junk maybe drinking a bit too much, smoking, all that stuff. He caught this thing called Q fever, which is a livestock-borne virus, um, and got really unwell from that and then kept smashing himself at work and then got Ross River virus. And, and those viruses have a really profound impact on your immunity and on your organs and stuff like that. And so later down the track, he then got diabetes and then he got heart failure. And, of course, throwing, you know, the stress of the millennial drought as well, and, you know, mum and dad splitting up and selling the station. Like it was just a, an enormous compounding um, stress on him physically and mentally and emotionally, I'm sure, although he would never talk about that. And so watching dad's health deteriorate and, you know, particularly when mum left when I was about 15, I just thought, wow, like this is, this is really terrible. And, like, I'm really fortunate that dad is still around. Um, but he's just started dialysis and... That is that sucks. Like there are no words for how much that sucks. And I was reflecting on it the other day and I thought, you know, how much do I really want? Am I really prepared to talk about this? Because seeing, um, you know, it's very current at the moment watching dad's health deteriorate and him lose his independence. And he's 65, like cognitively, 
he's young. He's, he's he's there, and you know, as we speak, he's in a in an aged care facility temporarily. I hope um, while we try and set things up at home, so he can live out the rest of his years at home. But it's just. You know, we don't talk about this stuff and it is happening everywhere. There are young people or people in general looking after people that have come off the land that, you know, have, you know, survived miraculously these enormous challenges and their health and their well-being is just not, you know, it's not there anymore. And it's it's so terribly sad. So um, that is my inspiration for doing the work that I do in health and safety now and, of course, why I have such a bent towards um, trying to support rural communities. And can I, well, it's, it's incredible to hear that angle of it where it's the health, wellness slash wellbeing piece, whereas, and this is maybe the stigma that I'm coming at it from, which is probably maybe similar to other people, but when when I read your profile and think of work, health, place and safety, I think of people with hard hats and and high-vis vests. Oh, no, it's a filthy stereotype, isn't it? And, like, so, you know, somewhere in the throes of all of this, um, you know, Dad was like, right, you can't make a living on $60 a day on the land. You have to go and get another job and you or you go to university. So he, like, you know, lots of people that get displaced from the land ended up going to Roxbury Downs, a mining community, and so I followed him. And at that point in time, there were two entry-level jobs. One was in, you know, administration. This is for women. One in administration or in health and safety. And I really had no clue what I was getting myself into. And health and safety, as you as you alluded to, um, is traditionally seen as a very compliance-orientated, autocratic, big stick, high-vis vests, stacks of paperwork, all that stuff. It's so disconnected from the intent, which is to honour people's livelihoods. So, um, you know, I went down that path and I was watching dad thrash around against bureaucracy and just, you can imagine it, like a farmer. Yeah. You know, bugger this. I'm, <laughs> I'm not you doing me, this. You're not, you want me to tick boxes? Why? You know, give me a damn good reason why I should do that. And, um, you know, I had a few light bulb moments and I was like, yeah, wow, this is so broken. And, you know, like no wonder ag don't want to do anything with this stuff because it doesn't make any sense to them. Um, so, you know, that start, that, that journey started way back in 2006 um, and, you know, it took a long time before uh, the topic was ripe to be pursued in agriculture and, uh, and related industries. But I think it has so much to do with the fact that the topic of health and safety is so poorly marketed, not in the least by the fact that we've got the word work in front of it. And, you know, work, health and safety, if I just say to you health and safety, you get it. It's, mm. it's human. The language it's not abrasive, but work, health and safety, trying to delineate a person's work life from their home life, which in a rural context is just about impossible, um, is a massive barrier, I suppose. So it's my mission to set fire to the barrier. <laughs> I've got a question on that because it was something I wrote down I was going to hold out for later, but what role does humour have in breaking that stigma? Oh, my God. Depends who you talk to, right? So, like, and this is where... Um, I'm a bit anti-establishment because establishment doesn't really like humour and they don't really like talking about things in a human way. And I think, honestly, like if, you know, particularly with dad's health, if we didn't have, you know, a good sense of humour, I mean, we'd all be rocking back and forth in straitjackets. Like this, <laughs> the topic is morose a lot of the time, but it doesn't have to be. And humour is something that flies in rural industries you know, super duper well. And we have, because we're not so 
deeply entrenched in that bureaucratic mindset like other industries are, like mining and oil and gas, we can do things differently. It's just we've got to kind of, you know, cut it off at the chase a little bit and, um, you know, get together and start to have those conversations about what that looks like. And not be boring. Yeah, don't be boring. (laughs) Don't be boring. It's not boring. Saving people's lives is not boring. Well, I like it when you dumb it down to that it is about keeping people alive and sending them home to their families it's that's all it is very simple all it is and you know like not to get on my safety soapbox here but you knew i was going to at some point um like the at some point the regulator in australia recognized that this whole mentality around paperwork just doesn't fly so they have stripped back their legislation to honor the primary intent of it which is don't kill someone so you know, previously legislation used to say it was highly prescriptive and it used to say you have to have documented policies and procedures which perpetuated the problem that we're now dealing with. But that doesn't exist anymore. There is not one line in the 601 pages of killing reading, as I'm sure you can imagine, that says you have to have a documented policy or procedure. So, again, we have an enormous opportunity. We just need to embrace it. And do it in a fun way. Yeah, oh, do it in a fun way. Mm. I'm interested to ask a little bit more around the business side of this and, and deciding to go out on your own as a startup business in 2009. What, what instigated this and stepping away from the mining industry? Oh, you've done your research, haven't you? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Ah, well done. Um, yeah, so, oh, look, it, ne- it, doesn't, it never happens in a linear fashion, does it? I mean, I guess I was probably starting to get a little bit ticked off with, the, with you know, trying to tow the company line from a health and safety perspective and, I, um, you know, reporting to people that, you know, we're all about box ticking and compliance and less about honouring the people um, that we were trying to, that I was trying to help, I guess. Um, but in actual fact, the first business that I set up in 2009 was opportunistic in the sense that the GFC had just hit um, the mining industry. And I, at the time, I was working for the principal on that site. And, but I recognised that there were all these contractors that really needed a hand. And I, and I knew all of them. And I thought, well, why don't I just you know, start my own business and serve them individually and have some autonomy and not have to report to the man in inverted commas. And so that was the start of it. And I had, I reckon it was around 2006 or a couple of years prior, I weirdly, and this is the power of doing planning, which I hate, but I did it. I did a five-year plan for how I was going to exit the mining industry and then eventually go into ag and fishing. Um, without being a journalist and uh, and yeah so that was just one of the steps along the way towards getting back in here. Was it easy enough to do that that step of going and working for yourself? Um, I think I was just naive and a bit ballsy for want of a better expression and I probably didn't like I was living with dad at the time so I was probably like oh look at if a fool for tall turns to rubbish then <laughs> I've got a roof over my head. It'll be fine. Like totally naive. Yeah. Um, if Which I did is, it now, yeah. It'd be it's a hell of a way to come at it though, isn't it? Because I feel like it's really interesting when I, and I kind of search for people to talk to who have done the corporate piece and then decided to go out on their own. And it and it's kind of, well, few and far between when it comes to nearly doing it like sweat equity and you're, you're bootlegging every dollar and you're like, oh, well, I'm stepping out of this job and God knows where the next one is. So yeah. Yeah, well, you just have to have one gig, I think. You just have to have one gig just to buy you some confidence and have a bit of cash dribbling through the door and uh, and then you just take it from there. And the rest is history, they say. Yeah, that's it. 
Tell me about the vision that you wanted to have when you went out on your own. The vision when I went out on my own, it's never been about cash for me, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, To this day, I'm still so disappointed about that. It's, uh, It's about, look, you know, I... I'm a rural girl, like I'm, that's who I am. And I feel like when we sold the station, um, you know, it's taken me a long time to acknowledge that I can't rebuild that. Um, so I've had to find a way of honouring that part of my identity and that connection with the land without being on it. Um, so, you know, it really, I love people. I'm an eternal empath. I don't think I had a vision written down on a piece of paper on what I wanted to achieve, but, um, you know, I love, yeah, I love people. So it just made sense um, that what was, you know, I was watching what was happening to my dad. There's obviously a huge need for preventing this from happening to other people's dads and families and stuff. So, yeah, it's just organic. And, and then is there a vision today or a yeah. purpose? Yeah, hell yeah. Um, it's about putting wealth We're, we're a real business now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm a professional, can you tell? Um, yeah, so I guess there's two. I wear two hats. Um, one is a social entrepreneur with the Plant Super Safety Initiative, and that's about putting health and safety front of mind um, in people in, in those in rural communities and ultimately helping people get home at the end of each day. And the other hat is as a, a work health and safety consultant, and that's focused on helping medium to large science businesses really unpick the narrative that health and safety is all about compliance and box ticking and stuff like that and making it real for them and reorientating it back to the primary intent, which is just don't kill someone. So, um, you know, the dream is to be able to to help people not only in a community sense but in an organisational sense so that every single part of the agricultural ecosystem is working towards the common goal of getting people home safely at the end of every day. This episode and the four-part mini-series is proudly sponsored by Syngenta, the team bringing global agriculture innovation to Australia for more than 90 years. Their world-class seed varieties and crop protection products help farmers overcome climatic challenges and sustainably grow more food, feed and fibre for all of us. Is it a natural progression or understanding to think that the consulting piece came first and then the, like bringing out the social entrepreneur piece, which is such a cool way to look at it, came later? Yeah. I, it did, uh, look, I think I was probably always a uh, – I, I always – I get a bit scared about using the word social entrepreneur because it's way too fancy for me. But you owned uh, it then when you said it. I was like <laughs> – I was thinking to myself when you said that. I was like – because the entrepreneur word, some people – duck under but yeah you owned it and I was like oh that's cool I should have shut my mouth in um <laughs> oh, it's good. Uh, after the fact I mean but no I I think I've always had it in me I think it's just oh, gosh the consultant piece came because I had to I have to put food on the table unfortunately um unfortunately. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you know yeah no it's it's yeah, it's been a tremendous journey. And um, I like to keep my tools sharp in the consulting arena as well because I get bored very easily. So, um, you know, the social entrepreneur side of things is really my super fun, super fun job. Um, the consulting piece I do really enjoy, but if I do too much, but I get bored and agitated. So it's the perfect combination now, I think, and I love it. And how do you split your time between the two? <laughs> um, very messily. Um 
you know, when you've got a list of things to do and you're like, oh, I really should do that first. And then inevitably you end up doing the last thing on the list first. The um, fun one. Yeah, the fun one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's that's the joys of being self-employed, right? And, um, you know, fortunately for me, I've been doing it for a while now. So I've learned that I just have to do the harder stuff first. Otherwise, it doesn't get done. And it's a constant practice of making sure that that happens. But building out on the plan of seed for safety campaign, entrepreneur business side of things so that's obviously really targeted towards farming and agriculture yes it is but it's not just you know I think uh, traditionally I took a quite a a narrower view around what I was trying to achieve by two doing two things one um, speaking just to work health and safety and two by just focusing on farmers and particularly rural women and there are, there are a few nuances with that. So as we spoke about before, if you have work, health and safety in front of the phrase health and safety, not only do you give rise to all these invisible barriers that prevent the conversation from happening, but you also um, don't consider the social context of health and safety, which mean which is about every single part of the rural ecosystem and the way they talk about health and safety. So, um, you know, my efforts were perhaps a little bit futile in the sense that, you know, one person is influenced by, you know, 50 million other people. And I was really only focusing on 200 of the 50 million people, I guess. So now the remit is much broader. Um, and what was the second one I mentioned? Second nuance? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, no, no. So rural women. And, I mean, they are, you can't argue the fact that rural women are incredibly influential. Um and, and that's great. So the, the initial exercise around profiling the stories of rural women and how they're leading the conversation around health and safety is very important and I'm going to continue to do that. But I've also recognised that if I want to have the biggest impact, I also need to recognise who the other champions are within the rural community that I can engage um, to have this conversation as well. So, yeah. And probably a silly question now, but that's the beauty of being a podcaster. So you get to ask them. It's, it's not purely just focused in on the day-to-day of the business. Does mental health and all of that start to come, the whole ecosystem of well It is. It is. Like I can't, nothing is mutually exclusive and I can't limit it because people are messy, like industry is messy, behaviour change is messy, culture is even messier. Um, so by keeping it inclusive, it gives rural communities to really um, add their own flavour to whatever the conversation needs to be at the time. Um, so it's as much about slowing down and speaking up and taking care as it is about in in a safety sense, as it is about, you know, mental health and about, um, you know, comorbidities and going to the doctor and not smoking and not boozing too much and all of those things. Um, yeah. It all adds up. Yeah. Do you you have a favorite moment or or like a, a defining moment that stands out along the journey for you? Um, in a personal sense or a career sense or just one of each if you like (laughs) Um, in a personal sense and he'll hate me saying this but I think you know my dad's the typical um, iconic Aussie bloke with the bucket hat and the big winged jean arms jeans and I don't even know that you can buy elephant ear jeans yeah I know you can buy them anymore and and you know like you know, he wore red wings his whole life. And, um, you know, there's been so many moments where I've seen this total superhero 
um, you know, just be so uncomfortably vulnerable because of his health or because of, you know, I remember walking into the kitchen in really dry years and I was, you know, I was only a kid. I didn't really know what was going on other than that we couldn't have deep baths and couldn't flush the toilet for a number one, you know, stuff like that. Um, but I remember going into the kitchen and he'd be there with his head collapsed in his hands and um, I'll never forget that and I'll never forget, you know, when he had his first amputation on his foot, um, you know, when, when you know, the, the multiple occasions when I've had to ring him to check that he's still alive and because he won't ask for help like lots of blokes, he won't talk about his health and safety. Um, so it's up to me to monitor the intonation of his voice, to listen for his breathing, to ask for ask different questions around when did he last go to the toilet? You know, are his legs swollen? All of this stuff, like it just creates a, you know, an, a, an unrelenting drive to want to do things differently and better um, and to want better things for particularly blokes in rural communities because, unfortunately, they're disproportionately affected by all these things. And it, are you doing it now to try and still help your dad today or is it helping others that are out there? Um so dad and I, I mean, you know, really, he's been on the land and a part of rural communities his entire life. I was, you know, I've only really had a snapshot compared to what what the experience he has. And so really, plant a seed for safety, it's not just my birth child, it's ours. And I've done a lot of soundproofing with him on that concept and, and almost everything that I do in that sense. And so that's given him a, a new renewed sense of purpose, I guess. It's something for us to concentrate on that's not directly about his health. So in that sense, it probably helps him. But, yeah, the, the, the project, the initiative itself is about everyone. And you're focusing on bringing other people into it, particularly females in the industry. And I, and I love that you've got a campaign which is save, save a life, listen to your wife. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how did how does that come about? And, yeah, was it that Plant a Seed for Safety was falling on deaf ears or? No, no. So it was, I guess, um, so Plant a Seed for Safety is the more um, politically, well, appealing or correct way of, you know, it's the, it's the overarching brand. Save a Life, Listen to Your Wife is sort of the sub line that really emphasises uh, the focus that I have on, um, you know, empowering rural women to keep talking about and keep influencing change at a, at a, at a granular level in their families, in their businesses, industries and, and communities around health, safety and wellbeing. They just, rural women are in this really unique position where they are often more risk averse um, and they're also the closest person to the work being done. Um, they've often worked in other industries and they have this different perspective that they can add you know, and, and add, add to that that like I watched my mum, my grandmother, and me, and my sister, and all these other women in Dad's life, you know, really bash his ears about health and safety, and none of it really landed. <laughs> um, but sometimes it did. Sometimes it did, and I now recognise that you know nagging is definitely not the way to go about it like nobody responds well to that but we do have a really innate ability to influence change as rural women particularly when it comes to health and safety so save a life listen to your wife on is that um and it's about turning up the volume on that I suppose and so what what is the approach that you take now to to get it across like how, how are you actually delivering these messages 
Yeah, okay. So it's profiling rural women online. So there's a stack of stories on how they've influenced change within their communities, farms or businesses. Um, so that's one. And there's a social media drive that accompanies that to push these messages out there. And also I'm trying to sort of dispel this myth that safety is all about paperwork and really bring it back around to um, you know, the practical, meaningful side of health and safety and the easy, easy, easy things you can do to start good conversations or to put, you know, stuff in place. Um, so that's one, one element of it. The second element of it and the expansion and the thing that I'm hoping to roll out eventually across Australia is really about, you know, rolling out a series of fun and meaningful activities in schools, you know, community clubs, sporting clubs, um, you know, liaising with the council, liaising with the RDA, Grow groups, industry associations, every level of that social ecosystem in that community and, and just getting, keeping it front and centre, keeping the conversation front and centre. And so, you know, an example of something like that would be um, planting sunflower seeds at the local primary school, planting seeds for safety with those kids and having conversations with them about what it means to them, um, you know, to get home safely at the end of each day. That's just one example. I've got 50 bazillion other, you know, shiny things rolling around my brain on the things that I want to do. But, um, yeah, another example would be went to the Eden Valley pub in the Barossa the other day, um, suspended a massive shovel from the ceiling with planter seed for safety written on it and had a quick chat with a couple of the locals there and, and basically interviewed them on why health and safety is important to them. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, Constantly changing and hopefully we'll grow bigger than Ben Hare and make me a millionaire and solve all the world's problems. But I <laughs> just all in the day. Not in that order. Not in that order. <laughs> <laughs> when you say that, have you seen the Netflix series? I think it is where, or I don't even know, but I think it's Netflix. And there's like the kids, the, I think it's like four year olds go to like nursing homes or whatever and they hang out with the age, aged care people for the day. And it's like you've got, such different perspectives of life but it's the most incredible series because it's like they build such a strong friendship coming at it from completely different angles yeah that's weird no I haven't but I remember having similar experiences myself like I uh as a kid you know I think one of the special things about rural communities is you learn to um be friendly with everyone doesn't matter you don't really discriminate age or anything like that and I remember interviewing a um, a veteran from World War One, no, two, sorry, two, um, who had worked on the Berber Railway and then ended up serving in the Japanese salt mines. And um, he and he actually walked through Hiroshima after the bomb had been through. And this man was just crippled with emphysema, um, still fighting the good fight at eighty something, and just had such tremendous stories. But yes, I love, I love that. I love the storytelling. Could, could be a cool way to bring it in. Yeah. Oh. I want to jump across because I think it's a really nice conduit you've been talking about well, all your work's based around people and community and that's where you'll recognise as the 2020 Syngenta Growth Awards winner, which is such a cool category to win and to to be part of. Do you remember getting the phone call or, or yeah, getting told that you were the winner of it? Do you know anything about this? No, so enlighten me. Well, I was like... Oh, man, you know, I knew who the finalists were and I was like, wow, that's stiff competition. And so when we had this online ceremony, because unfortunately, you know, 2020, 2021, COVID, all that stuff, and uh, and I had my little boy and I was like, you know, looking rather dishevelled this particular morning, I thought, I'm totally not winning this. So I'm just not going to do my hair, I'm not going to put any makeup on, but I will put a Planacy for Safety shirt on because, you know, I will have my camera on, but nobody's going to be looking hard. 
And then they announced it and I was like, explicative, explicative, explicative. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was the biggest shock of my life, but it was really, really cool. And the team at Syngenta have been um, entirely supportive the whole way along and I'm really excited to be doing stuff with them moving forwards. They're a, they're a good bunch. Do you want us to get a hold of that? announcement in the video and we can roll it out for you <laughs> oh actually you know what i think it is actually circulating and some really kind people took very unattractive photos of me and put them all over twitter so yeah no you shouldn't follow that up <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny it was pretty funny i'm normally such a curated person too like i took so many notes for this and i write all my scripts for my keynotes and stuff to within an inch of their life and then there i am boom in all my glory Anyway. cameras on yeah. etc mm -hmm. what do you hope that your community legacy is out of let's park your work but for you as a person what do you hope that is I think it's a couple of things I mean obviously I will never really know how much of an impact truly this stuff that I do is making because it's not often that people tell you oh, I nearly died today but I didn't <laughs> because of you. Um, I mean, that's just the nature of social change. I mean, that's obviously the first thing. But I guess the second thing is to send a message to anyone else who wants to get involved with agriculture, who thinks it's too hard because they don't own a block of land, um, that you can. If you're passionate about something, there is a place for it in agriculture. You just got to surround yourself with the right people and just keep trying, keep having conversations. And that flows very nicely into a question which I ask absolutely everyone. You get the chance to head back to or just around the corner to your old school and chat with the year 10 students. <laughs> What's your message to them about a career in agriculture? Oh, look, that it's the best industry in the world. It's the best people in the world. There is no, no greater sense of purpose than working alongside um, those that feed and clothe the world. It's, there are so many points of difference between that and every other heavily commercialised, heavily industrial industry. I couldn't even summarise it this morning. Like I just, I'd say go for it, get in there. And I would say you don't need a bloody university degree to go and do meaningful work in agriculture. I don't have one, hands down. So, um, you know, we, particularly at that school, we were plied with the message that you had to get a degree, otherwise you failed at life. And I think there's something vehemently wrong with that message. So... Yeah, get involved. Things are working out all right for you, Alex. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm winning. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for jumping on for a chat. It's been awesome to chat with you as one of the Syngenta Growth Award winners and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, Ollie. Privileged to be on it. Well, that wraps up our four-part mini-series as part of the Syngenta Growth Awards. And I've enjoyed sitting down so much with Simon, Sarah, Chris, and then Alex today. And I hope you guys have enjoyed coming on that ride with us. As the year starts to come to a bit of an end, we do have one more episode up our sleeve and just kind of working out. It's actually episode 99 in total of all the podcasts that I've released. So some stages I got my numbering wrong, but... I'm looking forward to joining you one last Wednesday for 2021. It's a year that has certainly thrown a lot at us with a bunch of people that I've been speaking to. It feels like everyone is in the need for a laugh. So let me see what I can dig out for this final week. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. And if you want to catch up on any of this or 
read about any of these incredible people or any of our other guests on the podcast, head out, head over to humansofagriculture.com.